Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt-Santi. Thrilled to have with me today, Miriam Belaglovsky. Hi, Miriam. Hi, Heather. How are you? Good, good. Thank you. Uh, thank you for being here. I know a lot of people listening will say, oh, yes, the Loose Parts books. I know, Miriam, or, you know, your blog posts. But um, just in case folks aren't familiar with you, what do you want them to know? Well, I think one of the important things about me is that I was actually born and raised in Mexico. So people listen to my last name and they automatically, they're connected to Russia or Poland. It yeah. is <laughs> My grandparents were Russian and immigrated during the Bolshevik Revolution and ended up in Mexico. So it's for me right now, it's been a very interesting passage when I'm seeing all of what's happening with, uh, you know, the newly, the, the, the immigrant population that has not been able to come into this country. And I remember my grandparents and that's what happened to them back then. They couldn't get a visa. So they ended up in Mexico. So that has been a lot of what has guided a lot of who I am today. You know, this idea of um, really finding ways to support and to connect and to give others Mm -hmm. because it's, been a challenge you know fortunately they did very well in Mexico and I was raised in a very privileged environment which is another part of me that a lot of people may not know I am the co-author of uh, the books the loose parts book I just released a new one on loose parts for children with diverse abilities which Uh is something that I am really diving into it more and more you know how to bring inclusion and equity yeah. In- is that book out yet? Or is that coming? It is. It came Ooh, out. I don't have that year. one yet. Ooh, I got to send you a <laughs> copy. So you got, I can make sure you give me your address. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, but I'll you know, um, I copy. use another one of your books in um, one of the classes I teach. I use the early learning theories early made learning. visible book. Yes. Which what do you is, think? Um, I, book. Um, I really like the book. Um, my students really connect with it. Um, because I think of the real world connections, you know, it's not just here's what somebody thought. But what I also love is you've got, you know, it's not just the the four main dead white guys, <laughs> so many theories, theory sections of, of textbooks talk about, and then they throw in Maria Montessori for good measure. But um, you've got Louise Derman Sparks in there. Oh. And I think that's important. Um, yeah, so actually, when I used it last, so I've been, you know, I've had the book for a long time, and have used it for a while. And when I finished using it to teach last spring, as we were going through the semester, I was like, oh, this all seems really uh, more surface level. (laughs) And the students were like, what are you talking about? This is an amazing book. And I was like, I just need to read it again with, you know, not teaching eyes. Like, I don't know. I, I, I just felt like I've used it so long. It's become sort of ingrained. Right. And and the students came in and they were like, remember, this is amazing. Yeah, I think we simplified it. We tried. I mean, I got to tell you, when we wrote that book, I personally dealt really deeply into understanding the theory. So I looked for old manuscripts. Uh Um, I read all of Howard Gardner's books, which I got to the original work. It's very dense and very complex. I've I've never made it through a Howard Gardner book because because it is very, it's dense reading. Yeah. So the, um, the nice thing is how do you bring it down so that yeah. students can can relate to it and the stories that were woven into it are yeah really- yeah so now I feel like I said something that was really offensive uh, when I said I was looking at it too familiarly too familiarly I don't mean I feel like I insulted your book. 
<laughs> no, actually, that, I felt like I, that to me was a compliment okay. because that was what we wanted. Actually, yeah. that book was a longer. Yeah. We got half of it out. Okay. Yeah. I, I think it just, yeah, it just goes right. It shares all that information mm-hmm. and then, yeah, connects it right away to what and does this mean in our work with children? Yeah. So I'm honored that you said that because yeah, okay. <laughs> that we accomplished what we looked to accomplish. Because okay, good. Book good. to write. I would love to to write another similar book, but include other theories. Mm-hmm. You know, I would like to do more Jerome Bruner, more of the sociocultural yeah. work, you yeah. know, go more into Gloria Ladson Billings, you know, more of that really work on equity and anti-racism mm-hmm. um that would be something that yeah I, in another life I can okay do. I was gonna say I'll be waiting for that one too but <laughs> oh, much right now. you you probably have a lot of projects going anyway Miriam we're going to talk about play as an equity issue um yes. and and so because we have a quote to start all our conversations I've got one that comes from an article that you wrote um, with Michelle Grant Groves, um, and was published in Exchange Magazine in May, June, 2019. Um, Promoting Equity Through Play is the name of the article. And here's here's the quote that, um, that I think is a good starting point for this. Looking at the ever-present push for traditional academics and the longstanding narrative regarding underserved students who need to be quote-unquote readied for kindergarten, Play is now actively marginalized by an educational system that denies equal access and opportunity to play, all too often falling along racially segregated lines, as well as the class and language statuses of the children they serve. Um, so, so let me let me start by just saying what what do you mean by equity? Like, let's let's define a term before we go further in this. Yeah, and I think that's always something that comes, um, a question that emerges all the time, you know, we we define equality, and then we define equity. And we think we're being, we're doing equality by giving everybody the same, but mm-hmm. in reality, the parameters are not changing. You know, the things just move up, but the inequities continue to exist. Mm-hmm. So the way that in this article, we're talking about equity is more about how when children are pushed to do more academic work, the whole idea of play is going out the window. You know, they're not giving that the opportunities to continue to play because we are remedying them. You know, in the article, we talk about readying children for the next life. And unfortunately, it comes from this idea that children from underserved communities are coming in with less than everybody else. Yes, maybe they have had less opportunities, but that doesn't mean they would not benefit from a really robust and rich environment where play is the main source of learning. And not I'm not talking about, okay, you're going to get me into this very difficult point. <laughs> we are not going to talk about play-based learning because uh-huh. that has also become this adult control. Yes. Space. Agreed. That's, so, that's, that's not going to get you into a lot of trouble here. <laughs> well, not with you, but maybe with yeah. other people. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I never talk about play base. Mm-hmm. I talk about play for the sake of play. Yeah. And when we remove play from children's lives, we're really creating an inequity mm-hmm. because play is really these opportunities, like this liberation, this freedom that children can accomp- can can engage with that can give them what they need in the future. And we're not seeing that. And that's where I call play as equity, mm-hmm. where we're missing the point, you know, where we don't spend time in this playfulness moments. We're not creating playful cultures. We're not creating creating spaces where children can just play mm-hmm. because we have such a push to constantly ready them. Right. So that's how we define equity yeah. within that context. And unfortunately it happens mostly in underfunded communities. Yeah, there is this idea, and I think this has come up in a couple of conversations that that re- I've recorded lately, that if a if a student is or a child is from, um, you know, a lower income uh, family or community, or you know, is is black or Latino, 
um, Latinx, sorry, uh, that that automatically puts them at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so that must mean that they need the the more formal school stuff earlier. And it's fine if we let these other kids play because they don't, you know, they're fine already. They're going to be fine. But this this community that we've identified and labeled um, needs something more. And that, um, I think that's dangerous. <laughs> it's so dangerous. And also it leads to a lot of wasted time and money. It, it is dangerous. And it's also a very inequitable process yeah. because we're sort of highlighting these communities, but we're not giving the community what they're asking for. We're not taking the time to talk to them. Mm-hmm. You know, we're just bringing in systems and systems and systems that are not making changes for them. On the contrary, we're using them to sort of push push agendas that are very politicized, that are very socialized. And I'm not talking about socialism. I'm talking mm-hmm. about social, cultural perspectives. You know, people that want to accomplish certain things to demonstrate something that has to happen. And we're doing it at the expense of children in these communities. Um, and that's wrong. That is mm-hmm. absolutely wrong. Mm-hmm. And it, it is dangerous because we're creating um, we're creating a new a new generation that may not be able to really accomplish their success. And that's where the system of oppressions come in. You know, we're really somehow continue to oppress the same populations over and over again yeah and if we don't do it in one way we do it in another you know before it was the high schoolers and they're not making it and now it's the young children you know Mm -hmm. they're not making it so we got to fix them yeah right they're not making it so they get a a greater burden (laughs) rather than me as the trained adult wondering um what maybe do I need to shift around or what maybe do I need to change about myself? What, what biases am I bringing to this um, process or conversation? It's kindergarten readiness, school readiness in general is just, um, I just can't, I can, I can hardly hear the phrase anymore without a physical (laughs) reaction reaction because it's so um, uh, disrespectful and I'll say harmful um, in it, the impact it's had on children under five and, and the programs that they're in and, you know, the ones who are, um, who are in school. Um, but I hadn't ever thought about how it's really, um, it's really intended to be normative. I mean, I know that like we, we want, we want to have this, these standardized children so that they can be successful by whatever we've decided is successful but those standards are white standards, right? Those standards are middle and upper class white standards um, that we have said, this is what it looks like when you're, when you're ready, Um, you will look like a child from a different Mm -hmm. whole, you know, whole set of circumstances instead of saying, what what do we need to know about all these humans who are involved (laughs) in all these processes? And I think that's what I was talking about, the quality. Yeah. You know, we want the standards. So we want to be everybody equal. Mm-hmm. But then we we don't realize, you know, if we look at equity here and, and equality there, and this is something I learned from Michelle, is that um, you know, you can continue to bring equality mm-hmm. and funding and standardization and everything, but the children will always this is the gap is never gonna close. Mm-hmm. You know, the gap will always remain the same because we're not looking at how to change the way we do what we do. You know, Mm -hmm. we just think let's standardize them all. Let's push these children, give them academics and at the expense of play. And we're saying, well, these children can play, like you said before, but these children cannot. Mm -hmm. And those are the issues of equity and equality that need to change. So so what what should we be doing? What what are that's some a great question? I think the first thing we need to do is we as a profession need to really come to terms and understandings of what we talk about. Mm-hmm. Because I think we have so many different perspectives on what play means. Right. You know, very frustrating talk- on social media. <laughs> I mean, it drives me insane. And this new emergence of play-based, 
is like, why? Yeah. Why are we calling it play-based learning when in reality, play is play? Let's just call it play. But even those of us who support play, we're not even in agreement because we all have a different perspective of what play means. Mm -hmm. So that's another issue of equity. I think one of my, my um, biggest push is to begin to talk about play from an equity lens so that we get away from these play base and no children just need to do this and um, what, do you, what, what do we call it? Um, unsupervised or, yeah. you know, let them be or forest. That's the other piece we talked about in the, in the article is how, if we if we really look at play from an equity lens and an inclusion lens, maybe we can get somewhere. Mm -hmm. Maybe really we can start wrapping our heads around yeah. something more robust that can help us really begin to engage in a deeper conversation. Yeah. I think we need to create, and I was talking to this about to Maurice Sykes about creating a council that really looks at play mm -hmm. like they did when they did the neurons to neighborhood. Yeah. Something that really brings in the, the research, because that's another thing that I think it's lacking. We do have a lot of research around play, but we don't really have a lot of research that really looks at these really deep perspectives on equity and play. Mm -hmm. So and I think from my own research and, and writing projects, whenever I try to look for, um, you know, good, solid research about play, it's old, right? A lot of it is old. And I, and I think that's part of the problem is that a lot of times, well, for one thing, we all know that, that like research done at a university level is very limited in the, the audience they have for participants or they limit the audience for participating by their, by their research parameters. It's going to be, white children whose parents can bring them and um, uh, higher income families, higher educated parents. So that automatically pulls some of the results into a little bit of question. But if you can't, if I think play, just, just play for the sake of play is harder to get that research funding and all that call, you know, the, the institutional backing um, because it's fallen so much even in our own profession it's it's held in such slight regard that it's hard to get new current research yeah and that's that's I think one of the biggest problems I think creating a council where we can have these conversations would be the beginning where can yeah. we really bring in an interdisciplinary approach where we have sociology psychology early childhood educators child development specialists, people that come together and really begin to talk about what does it really mean? What does it look like? And how do we begin to apply it? Because yeah. um, I think in many ways, when we just say, oh, play for the sakes of play, that's what's gotten us into trouble mm -hmm. as well, because it doesn't mean anything to other people. You know, they don't understand it. I'm not saying it's wrong or that we need to stop saying it. Yeah. We just need to find a different way of communicating what we mean. Mm -hmm. And that's been the challenge that I have noticed. I mean, you know, even if you just look at loose parts, uh, we didn't coin the term, we know that. Right. It, the theory that already was there, it was coined by an architect. Mm -hmm. um, but we gave context to a lot of it. I mean, five books. Right. It's pretty profound. You know? It's like <laughs> the data that we did. Yeah. And look what happened. You know, people started joining the University of Social Media yeah. and completely deconstructed the theory. And right. what you see, I mean, I like you said, you cringe when you hear readiness. I yep. do too. I cringe when I go and see all of these loose parts yeah. groups. Yeah. I just had to leave a face group group group. <laughs> <laughs> because it was supposed to, you know, it was, it, it was supposed to be a loose parts, but it was not, it was a pretty photo op. <laughs> yeah. Group, I mean, not necessarily. Yeah. Well, what I, mean, I look for when I look for loose parts stuff. And it is about, you know, do you do this with this? So the loose parts have become a way to do another Dito sheet, yeah. to do another worksheet, to do another lesson. You know, I just saw one on, on, teaching infants and toddlers about snow in a warm weather country. 
using loose parts. Using foam, <laughs> styrofoam <laughs> to make, to build. Yeah. So the, how do you fight that? Yeah. You know, how do you fight that? And you teach college. I just retired from teaching college. And that's our challenge. It you is. Know, it's very hard. Teach. Yeah. You know, um, though, the hopeful thing for me is I feel like as hard as it is to, um, a lot of my students are already doing the work. They've already been working in childcare centers or preschools or, um, you know, they have their family childcare home and then they, they come to get the degree that the licensing or whoever tells them that they need to get to, to stay in business or to keep their job or to, you know, sort of elevate themselves professionally. Um, and so they already, they come in with some already sort of established habits and a lot of it is very schoolification focused. Mm -hmm. Um, and even those folks, it's so hard for them to think about doing it another way, but they talk about play as if that's what feels right to them. They just don't know how to do it or how to convince others that it's okay to do it. And, um, you know, that's, that's my students in those conversations are talking about their early childhood colleagues. They're not talking about convincing families or legislators or policymakers. They're just talking about trying to convince their coworker to, to allow more play into the, into the program. And I think it's really so hard. It is hard. Um, you know, I just finished a book, writing a book mm-hmm. called Just Play. And it's for adults. Oh, great. It's how to infuse play into your family nights, how to infuse professional development, uh-huh. play opportunities. So really changing the way that we look at the whole picture, including conferences. Yeah. How to make conferences more playful. I mean, I honestly get very bored when I get to conferences. Yeah. It's a few people maybe that I enjoy listening to. Uh-huh. The rest of my time I spend networking. Because I am like, I can't hear another yeah. talking person. So anyways, <laughs> so I think the more we give adults opportunities to play, yeah. I think we begin to make more changes mm-hmm. into what we're doing. That's what's happening with your students. Yeah. I saw it with my own students. I had one in one of the groups that I was working with, uh, one woman at the end just couldn't stop sobbing. It says, I've never played in my life. Oh, Yeah. And, you know, it's so sad that there's another issue of equity, you know, people that come from communities where they have had to work so hard their entire life. And finally, they have a moment where they can actually sit and play. Mm -hmm. So how, how can we navigate that? Because then that's, you know, that's my privilege. I've, I've come across this when I, um, uh, so I used to work, uh, for a speech language department at another college at Purdue University. And every semester we had a new group of grad students to to do orientation with. And I always would just try to have a time where we were sitting around telling our stories of play from childhood um, before I introduced to them how our curriculum in the preschool was going to look very different than what they maybe were expecting. We'd spend a lot of time just trying to talk about it ourselves. And, and there were folks who just didn't have that yeah, um, that memory. And so I, I stopped or I tweaked that a little bit, but um, uh, you know, that, I guess, I don't know if that's a question. That's an element of my privilege that I hadn't considered. Yeah. I mean, I, I noticed that too. And that what I've done personally is I always have play in all of my sessions. Whenever I do present, I, I travel with a lot of suitcases, yeah. <laughs> loose parts. I mean, I have loose parts coming everywhere. <laughs> so um I let them play first before I ask the question, because uh-huh. sometimes when we ask the question about your memories of play, they can be very triggering. Yeah. They yeah. That's the other piece that very I deep had to sort of realize. Yeah. Right. So I give them the opportunity to first play and then begin to make the connections. And then I'll throw in the question, yeah. you know, halfway through when they have already spent a lot of time. Uh, playing I think we have not done a good job in connecting the idea of play to what it really means in the academics that are achieved you know because Uh I also know that we have sent this message to families and I work with a lot of um, families in um, 
in Los Angeles, in uh, Pacoima, where they come in. A lot of them is first time that they've been in this country. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of them come undocumented. A lot of them are, it's a transition community, but a very solid community at the same time. And they may not have the time to really talk about what they have done. They're in survival mode. Mm-hmm. They don't want their children to not have more than they did. And for them, because the message that they have gotten, I mean, here in California, we have first five, you know, the message was read to your child. Well, you have families that don't know how to read, but Mm -hmm. the message means if they know how to read, they'll succeed because that's what we've been saying for so long. Uh, We don't talk about, you know, let them play and develop their intellectual learning. Mm -hmm. We don't play and we don't talk about play and how it connects to their creativity You don't hear that in any of the advertising, in any of what the parents are getting. Mm -hmm. So they come in and they want their children to be successful. So what they know is ABCs and one, two, threes. Mm -hmm. So the job that we need to do as a profession is do both, you know, to begin to talk about, yes, this is important. And these, the many other ways that they can get there Mm -hmm. and at the same time, acquire more. Yeah. I I think we really, as a field, as a profession, mishandled the the neuroscience about those first years. And the message very much became, you better push those academics now or it's going to be too late. (laughs) Instead of, you know, the, the real message of those connections are being made here's how they're made. <laughs> and it's a rapid, you know, a more rapid time of, of connection than in other points in their life. But um, it's not about letters, numbers. No. And then we discreetly we they're traumatized. Yeah. So now we put a label on them. Yeah. You know, that's why the increase of children that have been diagnosed. Mm-hmm. It's, and I'm not saying that that may not be true. But I also think that there's a large number of children that have just been diagnosed because we don't know what else to do. Right. And and I think that that then takes away from the children who really genuinely do need the support for having, you know, ADHD or for being autistic or whatever that might be when we overly generalize or we overly, um, I don't know. I, I don't know when we don't, when we don't, um, see that for what it is that that sometimes it's the environment that's impacting sometimes it's their experiences that are impacting behavior and it's a disservice then to those who do need it who do need it yes yeah Uh, my point is that we don't know how to behave as as educators as adults (laughs) unless we have a label to fix yeah and I think that is the saddest thing that has happened in our Mm -hmm. profession yeah I mean, I look at all this readiness movement and it started with, you know, the Perry program, the Ypsilanti Michigan program. And um, that was what, 40 years ago? Yeah. It was a small group. Yes, it was a fabulous research process that they did. It emerged with all of these curriculum, but they were putting a lot of money. Yeah. So now we're taking that idea and trying to replicate it, but we're not putting the funding. Yeah. So that's another inequity right. that has happened. Yeah. Or, or it just gets lost. And we, so we, we talked about the Perry preschool project a few episodes ago because Louise Duerman Sparks wrote an article that was like, here's what really was happening. <laughs> the the bank street curriculum didn't even exist at the time that we were doing the Perry preschool. Um, but we say, Oh, we have this study that says high quality early childhood leads to these good results. And we just stop there and we don't say, okay, so what specifically were they doing in that program? Well, they were including families. They were doing home visits. There was um, a a feeling of community and, um, you know, teachers who had time to reflect and plan and, and use the, that true emerging kind of, kind of curriculum. Right. And now we have, you know, the, the high scope that came. Yeah sort of result of that yeah Uh, but it was also the funding yeah right right absolutely yeah and and we can't compare that to what is happening Mm -hmm. today 
you know, yeah. the, the, it, it's an inequity all yeah. around. Doesn't matter which way we look at it, what is happening in early childhood today, it's really sad. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I want, I'm keep thinking, do I still want to do this? <laughs> and honestly, yes, because it's my passion. You know, I come from the entertainment industry. I had an executive job that I left to do this work and never look back. Uh-huh. You know, that was 30 some years ago. And um, my hope is that I, one day, maybe I'll do a documentary or something to tie it together. But there you go. I I love this work. And I think we need to do something to yeah. change the reality. You know, social media has been a problem. Mm-hmm has created tremendous disconnect into what is real theory and it upsets me that the people that run these social media groups have not taken the responsibility to really look at what it is you know that's why I I really admire Susanna Axelson mm-hmm. because she is consistent in her message and she challenges people's thinking you know I wish I had time to do that right I don't yeah, I'm um, just just at the end of her original learning book. Like I, I just have, I think oh. one chapter left and it's- uh, It's fabulous. Great, yeah, yeah. yeah I reviewed the book for her. Oh, <laughs> so a while ago you were, you were talking about, um, can we go back to this idea of a council uh, yes, for play? Um, because I, I have two questions, two things about that. The first though, is I just want to bring back um, a couple episodes ago, I had Josh Thompson and Vivian Janizer. Is that how she says her name? I've forgotten already. Um, who I met at the IPA conference in Texas when I, when I met you um, in person finally. And um, so they came on and they were talking about the scholarly snapshots book that they did that has were and I can't remember if you contributed to what, one of the essays to that no, um, uh, but but it's a collection of 16 essays essentially and each one is a different um theory of play but they're from all different um disciplines it's not all just early childhood people or just child development people um so I want to I want to plug that again while we're talking about it but so just, how achievable is that and what would a council like that look like what do we do I want to do it I'm in <laughs> I I think it would have to be, I don't want to make it, I don't want to say selective, but I yeah. think there has to be a level of selectivity around it. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if you listened to the Essence of Play Summit that I did this last November. Uh-huh. I had uh, Rasul Mowat, which is, who's a professor in, in Parks and Recs. Mm-hmm. And he brought such a different perspective and understanding of what we need to be doing because he was looking more at the geographies where children come from. So we started talking about this idea of play and how in many communities, you know, I grew up like that where the parents will sit in the porch and we would run around and they would keep track of us somehow. (laughs) My children grew up like that. And Mm -hmm. that is not happening because we're not respecting it anymore. Mm -hmm. So I think you need to bring urban planning, people with urban planning experiences, people with design experience, architects. We need to bring in sociologists. We need to bring psychologists and really begin to, the way that I would start, I mean, I really would love to put this council together Mm -hmm is to start looking for the research and what resonates. Mm-hmm. You know, like I already know that Rasul would be the person that I would bring in. Yeah. Because I know he would bring a different perspective. You know, he talked a lot about the favelas during the Olympics in Brazil, how people were displaced. And then he talked in, in his book, he talks about himself growing up and how the country club left the area that he lived in uh-huh. and left a lot of emptiness in the space because of white people left. Oh. So, and I read articles on parks. They started doing them as a way to keep the community, you know, the black communities out mm-hmm. of every place else. And then right. the white community started crying that why don't we have the same wonderful parks they have? Mm-hmm. So, we need to talk about that. We need to talk about where is there access for play? You know, we want to say, yeah, children will play anywhere, but access to play is crucial. I worked in a community where there were 
13 active gangs in a mile and a half radius in a port of entry community in, in Los Angeles. Four o'clock, there was nobody outside. Yeah. Oh boy. Play was gone. And what we started finding is children were entering kindergarten. They had vision issues because they were watching they so much TV. So their eyes fixated and they were having a hard time reconnecting them and refocusing them. Mm -hmm. 75% of the children we tested, tested with vision problems. Mm -hmm. So then you need to bring in the medical community as well. You yeah. need to bring in the business community. The, the problem right now is that education is isolated. You know, we have isolated education. Uh -huh. And then we have all of these other satellite companies that try to feed into the money that comes into education. So every time there's money that comes in, it goes to the same place. It's happening here in California. Yeah. You know, with, with this TK movement that emerged when it started I raised my hand in the middle of a hearing and I said that sounds wonderful for educators and for administrators where are the children in this equation right. they banned me they never they didn't talk to me after that <laughs> well good for you for raising the question I mean that's that seems so basic but that's I think where a lot of my struggle comes with comes from is so much of what we say we're doing because we value children or we want the best for children is really what's best for the adults. Yeah. And, and the children are often the last to be taken into consideration if they're taken into consideration at all. Um, or they're, you know, it's such a deficit model yeah, to view that's them. Through. I keep going to the play as equity. Yeah. We see play as from an equity lens. We can ask those questions. Uh -huh. How is that better? for the child? How is having TK going to help this child? Mm -hmm. How will the practices and they try to convince me that they were doing what I was talking about. And I said, I never saw it. You know, because <laughs> the money is going to people that don't get it. Uh -huh. So it's, it's so then you ask, how is this equitable in the way that is being funded? What is taken away? It's it's not an easy battle. But I think if we could have more people Mm -hmm. talking about it from a different angle, we could grow it. Yeah. I mean, I'm a firm believer of that. Yeah. You know, we could make a difference. I absolutely, I have to believe that, right? <laughs> we don't, we don't make enough money to do this for, uh, and not believe in it <laughs> to continue to put this, this work and, and the sometimes heartache that goes in. Um, and I don't mean, you know, I, I'm not, I don't mean that in the all teachers are heroes narrative that is also sort of damaging, but um, so, so a lot of our listeners are, you know, folks who are in a childcare classroom, in a preschool classroom, working for Head Start, doing that direct frontline care and, and teaching stuff. Where do they, where do they fit? Let's, do we have I, any easy steps or, or, or how do you see them fitting? I think they're a strong voice. Mm-hmm. I think they're just not being heard. Mm -hmm. uh, if I would do it all over again, you know, in all the 30 years that I used <laughs> to do teaching, uh -huh. um, I would help them learn to read the myth because we have so many things that have myths in our profession. You know, licensing says, no, we can't. So uh -huh. we can't risk. Uh, Taurus, that's where I do more off now you know I really talk about what does it say in licensing mm -hmm. because it's become sort of something that has been pushed on them so if we could empower them to really read and I know that is hard because they're tired and they're not getting paid a lot but I think if we could help them and support them in really understanding that a lot of what has happened has been mystified and it's not reality mm -hmm. I think they would be more willing to speak up it that's, takes courage that's right know? that's a great I idea see. and and you need I think a lot of people who do want to speak up more feel like they're not confident enough to articulate against an administrator or right. a, a parent um, but but what you're describing is becoming articulate in that like really understanding what the reality is so that mm -hmm. when you try to talk, it's not just, well, um, you know, it's not just Heather's opinion. It's not just um, what somebody likes and prefers. Here's here's what licensing really says. 
Yeah, you know what? I'm not as worried about the people that are in the trenches because I think they will do it. Yeah. I think what we need to tackle is the people above, you know, the in-between. Okay. Not the policy makers, but more of the administrative groups uh-huh. where, because they're the ones that push a lot of these agendas. You know, when I saw in all the, all of the public policy work that I've done, uh, that's what I saw. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's somebody in a department of ed or the county office of ed has an, an agenda and it's yeah. mostly personal agenda and they see money coming. Yep. It's when it begins to be, um, then they keep that discourse. Yeah. So of course, how do you, how do you get what you want? You silence the people that are doing it. Mm-hmm. So I'm more worried about that. It's like, how do we change or how do we get them out of the way? Yeah. Now here's uh, um, somebody that works in the department of ed said to me once uh, when I was having this type of conversation with him and this person said, well, there's only so much innovation you have in education. I I thought if we in education cannot be innovative. (laughs) Oh my yeah, that's the explanation of why these big bureaucracies have been built. Mm-hmm. And that's why we keep rehashing and repeating the same thing. Yeah. So I don't think it's an easy thing, but I think where to start is we, you, me, all of us who speak on play, we need to come to the table and say, yes, we need to talk about play for the sake of play, mm-hmm. but we need to also define it. We need to explain it. We cannot just have people just play and say, let just children play. We need to talk about what are they gaining Mm -hmm. when they're playing? Because what we're fighting is doing that. We're not doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think, I think families too are key because, you know, what you described when you were talking about working with um, the, the families in that, in the transition community you were describing was parents who were advocating for their children with the best information that they had and and they're inundated before they have before they are parents before they have children in their lives to to worry about in this way um with messages that earlier is better academics is is it play is a waste of time unless it has letters on it unless your toy has has letters or number on it numbers on it and if we could um if we could help them become more comfortable with yeah. the value of play, then we could achieve that goal of play for play's sake for the children. I dream of the day when when parents are calling child care centers and saying, tell me about, tell me how much time children get to really play in your program and not what do you do to get them ready for school? But they call and they say, how many ways can my child play at your program? But then here's the inequity. Mm-hmm. A lot of the parents that I'm talking about are parents that have no money. You know, mm-hmm. that they live in very underfunded communities. Right. They are living day to day, paycheck to paycheck. Not even paycheck to, I mean, mostly our daily jobs that they do. Um, so they expect the schools to do that work. Oh, and sure. That makes sense. Schools are only doing what the schools think that they want to do to get the funding that they need. It's all money. Yeah. And then we have... Uh, families in the upper class communities who are also pushing their children to all of these organized sports Uh, oh yeah because you know they don't learn through play they learn through doing that Mm -hmm. Uh, so for to have parents to call the schools you know those would be the parents that have the money because they have a choice of where to go oh sure well, yeah. So, I mean, that was my privilege showing again. I guess that was coming from my context as a former child care center director where people were looking for right. child care, not necessarily to enroll in um, public school or, or private school or something like that. But yeah, yes, you're right that um, parents have varied experiences too. That <laughs> well, it's can't like, all be lumped into it's... one. And I just tried to lump them all into one. But it's, it's okay. I mean, this is all a process that we're growing yeah. through. I mean, here we are, two white women talking about it, you yeah. know, 
maybe I can because I grew up in Mexico that made, but I'm still a white woman, mm-hmm. you know, green eye white woman that I right. can get anywhere and achieve anything that I want because I've been given that privilege. The question is, how do we shift that? Again, the lens of play equity or play as equity, how do we shift it so that we begin to understand that equity starts when we give children opportunities to really engage in this powerful, liberating way of being Mm -hmm. in the world. And that's our job. You know, that's what we need to be doing as early childhood educators, especially those of us who have gotten to the point where we have a little bit of influence out there. You know, we need to start talking about this in a more robust way. And we're not, Heather, Mm -hmm. because we're too busy saying, oh, play is play. You know, I mean, I love Dan Hodgins. May he rest in peace. Yes. a dear friend. Yes. But there were moments when he would drive me crazy. Oh, Dan and I definitely had that conversation because he would say, why does it have to be about learning? And I would say, because children learn from everything. <laughs> like it's always, there's always an impact. Um, but yeah, definitely. He he was one of those. Um, so see, when we are not getting together as a profession yeah. and and not, I'm not saying stop playing, I'm saying yeah. codify it. Give it a name, show why it is important. You know, we're trying to battle practices, but we don't present another perspective. We just say, well, just let them play. You know, they have standards that they have to meet. The parents have bought into it. The the educators have to do it. Mm -hmm. Now we need to be able to give them the tools. And if we don't, we're not going to get anywhere. Right. I I would love to live in a world, maybe that's the third or fourth time I've used that phrase this episode, but I would love to live in a world where nobody questioned and children just played because they were children and that's their state and their biological drive and their right. Um, But the reality is we have people to persuade. And whenever you have to persuade someone, you have to think in their terms. So if it's a money argument, you've got to figure that out. And if it's a philosophy argument, you've got to figure that out. And, And it's not that you're selling to it. Mm-hmm. I think it's on the contrary. I think you're learning to manipulate it. You know, that's how I see things. Sure. But I think it's an authentic, like we're not. Absolutely. I, th- I think the arguments to be made for play in those different contexts are authentic. Yeah, absolutely. But, but, but it is manipulating to your audience. and Not and manipulating the people is manipulating the system so that you can understand where they're coming from yeah. and be able to get your message across. Yeah. Wasn't Marsha McLuhan who said the message is in the, in the or medium was that her yeah the medium we're talking about yeah the message is in the medium um so we know the medium we know the context we need to start talking that context you know that's that's one of the things i think suzanne axelson had does has done so beautifully in her book she really is able to articulate it in a way that makes sense and people will probably start buying it you know with with the loose parts book, I think they have this profound um, research behind it. And there were a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. But then unfortunately, it was just taken and bastardized right. in different ways. Because it's easy, you know, I can take this and put it here. Oh, loose parts, look, I'm being mm-hmm. really... Um, I don't want to use that word, but I guess <laughs> very trendy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I usually have a real aversion to anything that sounds like just a new buzzword. Um, uh, but loose parts got me right away. Like once I really started looking at it and it, because it, there's theory behind yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. You just yeah. need to understand. And here's the other thing about equity that I'm going to bring in. Yes, please. That we also talk in the, in the article is. If you notice, most of our really systems that we follow, they're all mm-hmm. foreign systems. Whether what systems? Foreign. They foreign. Come from oh. You know, we, we all, all of a sudden are all radio inspired. Yeah. Yeah. And many people don't even know what it means, you know, so we're, that is in many ways another issue of equity because that regio inspired or regio philosophy or pedagogy has not been implemented in communities that could really benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And how do you translate what happens in Reggio Emilia, Italy, into a classroom 
in um, you know this community I was talking about. Mm-hmm. How would the children be able to connect with it? Yeah. How do you translate it? We don't take the time to do that. Yeah. Maria Montessori. It became a commercialized jargon. You know, right. we we sell it. This is how rich wealthy parents can go and buy mm-hmm. into a Montessori program. My friend, my friend Norman is going to be killing me after if you listen. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Angie play I love me too what they're doing it's wonderful I have had profound conversations with Jesse mm-hmm. and they're being more cautious about how they're translating into this country yeah, yeah I think um, so Jesse's been on the show several times and I think he's very he and Christina uh, Tapia both are very conscientious about um, respecting what Angie really is and and what our culture really is and how it can and doesn't fit um but and i think some of it too oh yeah good. yeah like the no oh, this is a whole other never mind i was gonna say the regio and the all the labels work to sort of be gatekeeping too within the field and it divides us more than it unites us and um, yeah great and, and again the equity yes yeah for sure well here we are in an hour miriam <laughs> I mean, I I could go on. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll your your listeners won't listen so long. (laughs) We'll plan a part two sometime, and um, and you can come back after I get the new loose parts book and read it. We can. (laughs) can I would love to have that conversation with you and Mike and Mike. Yeah, Um, the three of us. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I'm. I'll volunteer him right here on the air, so everyone (laughs) expects you. Mike, you're invited. um he yeah he I think obviously has to be in on that conversation so this has been really great thank you so much thank Um, you uh and I I really enjoyed having you on um and uh let's just I mean your your books are available everywhere right do you have a a website do you I do it's um playful transformation that's right yes okay if you google it it'll come up you'll find they'll find you I trademarked the name so now it's registered for the (laughs) (laughs) parts <laughs> I learned good yeah yeah um okay well um I I know people are going to enjoy this episode so again I'll just thank you um and then and then we'll wrap up appreciate your time Miriam and your thoughts and thanks everybody for listening to another episode of that early childhood nerd and that's the show now go get your nerd on has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.